If you have a Bible today, we will be in John chapter 19. Look at a few verses in John chapter 19. So grab your Bible, your phone, your app. Turn to John 19. So it's always difficult when you enter into the middle of a story rather than its beginning. A few months ago, I came downstairs and my wife was watching the Disney movie Encanto. So neither of us had seen the movie at that time, and I had no idea of the, pro- of the problem or the plot or the characters of anything that was going on. So coming into the middle of a movie, you're kind of lost, right? And when I enter the story, these characters I don't know. I don't know how they're related. There's no backstory to help me to figure out what was going on, and I could not figure out why they did not talk about Bruno. They did not talk about Bruno. Oh, no, 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 no. Moreover, I started watching the movie when everything was falling apart. So the family relationships were fraying, and the house was literally in shambles. It was the lowest point of the entire story. So what was even more frustrating is that we had to turn the movie off before there could be any resolution. And so I didn't know what was going to happen to these people. I wasn't even sure the problems that needed to be solved. And I wasn't sure who was going to answer them or how they were going to be fixed. Now I'm confused about who's who, and I'm anxious to see what's going to happen to them. You might feel that way as we come to our Bible text today. So we're jumping into the middle of the Jesus story. Jesus has been crucified, and now he is buried, dead. We're actually jumping into the greatest of all stories. And if you're going to pull these few verses out of the uh, Gospel of John... It may not make much sense. But remember, it's in the middle of a story. There is a beginning and a middle, and there's an end, a resolution. So if we were to walk into the movie in the middle of a rising action, at the edge of a cliffhanger, or if we were to stop the movie before there's any kind of help or hope, you've watched shows or seasons, right, that's been left on a cliffhanger with unanswered questions, unresolved conflict. Is the hero alive or is he dead? Who is the father of her baby? Who is that new villain in the post credit scene? And most importantly, who shot JR? <laughs> Glad some of you get that. Before streaming, you could binge an entire series, all the seasons back to back. You wouldn't have to wait months to know what happened, knowing if the hero lived or if that romantic relationship worked out, or most importantly, you wouldn't have to wait seven months to episode four of season four to know that Kristen Shepard shot J.R. Ewing in a fit of rage. I don't think that's spoiling it. It's 43 years old. (laughs) But put yourself in that time between the seasons. In that frame of mind, think about how you feel. What's going to happen? You're trying to figure out on your own what's going to happen to all these people. You're writing the script in your head, right? When everything is falling apart, when the heroes are trapped, hope and salvation seem so far off. You know that feeling, right? When I stepped into the the Ikanto movie story, it was all conflict and no resolution. I didn't know how the story would play out, but I had my suspicions. This is a Disney movie, and there's 22 minutes left. I have a feeling it's going to wrap up pretty nicely especially with some kind of joyful music compilation with, that will incorporate all the themes that have been woven throughout the movie. And of course, I wasn't disappointed in that. It's a Disney movie, right? It all works out in the end. There's great lit resolution in that film. 
And now my kids watch that movie incessantly. Your kids have those movies, right? Encanto is one of ours, and now I know the whole scope. I know most of the songs, and they run through my head obnoxiously. And so I know the beginning, I know the rising action, I know the peak conflict, and I know the ultimate resolution. Now I watch it, it's just annoying, mundane, and boring, right? And after you've watched a movie or read a book, you know the story, you know the middle, you know the beginning. You don't get anxious towards the end because you know what happens. You don't get frustrated or flustered when something goes sideways. And so a few weeks ago, we were watching this movie again, and our oldest gasped, Dad, what's going to happen to their house? What's happening? Heloise, you know what happens. You know this movie better than I do. Just watch. Oh, yeah, I remember. And so as an adult, we often don't need reminding or we we don't need to remember what happens because we've watched the film so much. You don't bother even to pay attention to the conflict, the tension or the turmoil of what's happening because you know it works out in the end. I think that's how we often view the story of Jesus. He has been crucified, brutally executed by the Romans. He's declared his work is finished. He's given up his spirit and has died. And then on the third day, he is resurrected, never to die again. Friday, a horrific and deadly day. But it all works out in the end because Sunday, he's resurrected, justified. Sunday morning comes and we celebrate. And we just skim over the events in the middle. Because we know how the story turns out with Jesus triumphing in the resurrection, we forget that there is a day between the death and the rising day. When no one writes a word and they all wonder, is this the end? And we rightly preach and proclaim Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, but we often miss this long, silent Saturday that sits here in the middle. We've become so familiar with the plot line that's just old hat, it's mundane. We forget the tension, the anxiety, and the uncertainty that seizes the disciples in that moment. When Jesus is in the grave, all seems lost. Their temporal lives and their eternal hopes are on hold. Jesus has disappeared the scene, and he hasn't returned. And they're asking themselves, is it over? Is Jesus dead? Are we going to be killed next? What have I been wasting my life and hopes on? And where do we go from here? That's what the disciples are thinking in this moment. And so as we consider the significance of Jesus' burial and the disciples' situation on this lonely Saturday, we will see application for our own lives because we too live in a long and uncertain period of time when Jesus doesn't physically walk with us. He's not eating with us. And And we may wonder, is he coming back? The questions the first disciples were wrestling with can be similar to what many of us struggle with today. Jesus, who was just with them days ago, is gone, and they aren't sure even if he is coming back. So for the the apostles, Jesus is dead and has descended into the grave. They're waiting a resurrection. We who live on the other side of that resurrection know that Jesus has ascended from the grave, but he's also ascended back to heaven and we await his return. So let's turn our attention now to the text. John chapter 19, starting in verse 38. So the apostle John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, writes this. 
After these things, which is the crucifixion and death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come by Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the Apostles' Creed, that most ancient of all Christian statements of faith, includes the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried. So the earliest Christians made it a point of fact, a point of orthodoxy, to include the burial of Jesus. And this fact may seem a little insignificant or even extraneous for us. Well, he's dead. Of course, we bury dead people. But we must affirm the truth that Jesus was physically dead and placed in the grave. And so, in fact, Jesus' interment should actually shock us. So let's look now at our first point. Let's look at the historical fact that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. We see Jesus' burial in a borrowed tomb. And we have to understand that John includes all of these details for a reason. He's given these specific pieces of evidence that Jesus was dead. He's doing so in part because there were groups in the the first century, and even today, who will deny that Jesus was physical, that he was mortal, and he was dead. So from the very beginning, people have denied this. Some groups thought he just seemed like a human being. He only pretended to be human. He was only a spirit. And since his physical body wasn't real, his death wasn't real. He doesn't need a grave. Others would say, like the Muslims do, that, well, somebody took the place of Jesus on the cross. Jesus didn't really die. He escaped that. Someone else was crucified, dead, and buried. Others say, even some today, that, well, Jesus didn't really die. He only fainted or swooned on the cross. And then in the coolness of the tomb or some medicinal remedy from the disciples, he suddenly awoke and got back together. But John treats the actual physical death as incredibly important for our salvation. He goes on and gives us several reasons why we should believe that Jesus is really dead. So let's look at the reality of Jesus' death. So just consider the evidence that John gives us and that history itself gives us. Well, think back a couple chapters ago. Jesus has been tortured. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been spit upon. He has lost copious amounts of fluid, of water, His heart rate is increased. His blood pressure is dropped. Think of the physical and the psychological pain that he's endured just in the beatings alone. He is shamed and ridiculed. Then he's marched through the streets of Jerusalem to be stapled and nailed to a cross. His wrists and his feet are pierced. His shoulders are pulled out of socket. He's exhausted, exposed, and dehydrated. No one is surviving this kind of physical torture an extreme execution. Even with today's modern medicine, no one is coming back from this. But John doesn't leave it at that. He goes on. He says the soldiers see he is dead, and what do they do? Well, they pierce his side with a spear. They don't break his legs like they did the other two, 
but they pierce him and water and blood flow out, meaning that his lungs and his heart are ruptured and they are extinguished. But think about the people who are doing the piercing. Think of the centurions. Death is their occupation. They're experts at killing people. They know a dead guy if they see them. And if they were to allow a dead man to be removed from the cross, well, they're going to be dead. So they know Jesus is dead. It's hard to fool that. John records all these details in the passage we just looked at of all the the burial practices and the spices and the witnesses who are looking at that. And so think about the princess bride and they take, uh, his his, his name escaped me, but it takes him to Magic Max. What's the hero's name? Somebody help me. Yes, Wesley. Wesley, it just so happens, is only mostly dead. Right? There's a difference between mostly dead and all dead, according to Mad Max, or Miracle Max. Now, mostly dead is almost alive. And if you're all dead, well, there's only one thing left to do. Go through his pockets and find for loose change. Jesus is not mostly dead. Jesus is all dead. And so the reality of Jesus' death is important. He is physically in the grave. Why? Because now we see the necessity of Jesus' death. The necessity of Jesus' death. So John gives all this evidence of physical death of Jesus because we need to see the theological necessity that Jesus died for our salvation. The Bible is clear that death is necessary for the sinner and that Jesus' death for us is necessary and sufficient for the justification of God, the glory of God, in saving all who trust in him. The wages of sin is death, says Paul. The wages and the wrath of God is directed toward the sinner. The sinner who rebels and becomes a slave to sin deserves to die in their sin. We deserve to bear the penalty in our bodies. The payment for us is mortal and eternal death. There's no escape from this reality. The wrath and judgment of God must be satisfied. That's why Jesus, as we saw last week, must become the sacrifice, the one and eternal and perfect sacrifice for his people. He must become the object of God's wrath. He must propitiate, drink the whole cup down. And if Jesus does not die for us, therefore we must bear all or some of the penalty. The cross should not hold Jesus. It should hold us. The grave should not be dug for Jesus. It should be dug for us. So Jesus humbles himself to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross, to be buried in the grave on our behalf. The death of Jesus once and for all is the perfect and necessary sacrifice for our salvation. It's the only way for God's wrath to be alleviated. It's the only way for sin to be atoned for. It's the only way our release can be granted. This truth is at the heart of the gospel. But God steps in and sends his son, and the son voluntarily goes in our place. Jesus dies for you. There's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. He's the only one who can carry our sin. He's the only one who can be buried in our place. So the burial of Jesus highlights the depth of our depravity and our rebellion against God. We should be in the grave, not Jesus. The tomb of Jesus shows us in stark detail the love and mercy of God. Here's how Albert Moeller puts it. 
He says, the tomb represents the extent of God's love and cost of our sin. The burial of the Son of God displays the paradoxical unity of the full horror of human sin and the illustrious, cosmic, infinite, and scandalous love of God for us in Christ. By absorbing the wrath that was meant for us, he displays his love and mercy to an undeserving people. By dying in our place, he shows us the price of our crime. By being buried in a tomb, he reveals the depth of his love for us. By enduring all this on our behalf, he shows us the the necessity of it for our salvation. If there were another way, Jesus would have taken it. But there's not another way. This is the only way for you to be saved. And John reiterates it over and over and over again that Jesus died and was buried because it's necessary for Jesus to be buried on our behalf so we would not be. So we see what's happened with Jesus on this day. But what are the disciples? What are they doing? Well, they're living in an in-between time. So we see Jesus buried in a borrowed tomb, and number two, we see the disciples living in an in-between time. So think of the disciples. They're living between death and resurrection. So on that Friday night and Saturday, Sunday, yes, is coming, but they don't know that yet. They don't know what's going to happen early Sunday morning. They haven't lived through it, so they're adrift in this long and dark Saturday. They might remember the promises of Jesus, but they're not sure how it's all going to play out. They don't understand what's going on. So they live in between a promise and a fulfillment. And this is how the Bible speaks all the time. The pattern of the Bible is one of promise, waiting, and fulfillment. Just think about Abraham. God promises him a son. It's not until 20 years later that he gets Isaac. Joseph has a dream when he's a teenager that his brothers and his mother and his father were going to bow down to him. It's not decades until Joseph sees that realized. And what has he got to go through between that? He's sold into slavery. He's made a slave to Potiphar. He's put into prison. We see the promise to Moses and the Exodus. Hundreds of years happen between the time they go to Egypt and then their their exodus out of Egypt. David is inaugurated as king, but for 20 years he's on the run from King Saul, not knowing that he's going to live or die. The exile and the restoration between Babylon and Persia. The death of Jesus is promised, it happens, and the resurrection is still pending. So all this promise and fulfillment happens, but it's not instantaneous. This is the pattern for them in the Bible and for us. We live in the middle of a similar situation. Jesus, who comes preaching that the kingdom of God has come among us, he inaugurated the kingdom of God, but he hasn't fully established it yet. So he brings the kingdom, but it's not set up in its full and final form. And Jesus, when he ascends, remember, he leaves us here. He leaves us here to work. He leaves us here to do good things and to serve him. And so we too live between this promise and fulfillment. Look, when Jesus ascends, look at the promise that is given. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. So the angels say this. This Jesus, speaking to the disciples, this Jesus who you saw, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. Remember, the disciples are sitting on the hillside going, he's gone. Is he coming back? Where'd he go? So we live in this time when Jesus has ascended, but he's not come back yet. And so we're still sitting, is he coming back yet? What's taking so long? Why has he not come? 
So the promise here in Acts, we see a fulfillment. And Paul speaks about the fulfillment here in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so we live between the promise and the fulfillment, right? In the middle. But Jesus has not left us alone. No, he has given us the Holy Spirit who steadies our hearts, assures our spirit that we are saved and being prepared for the kingdom. So we're not left alone because we have this down payment of the Holy Spirit. We know that there's an indestructible and unfading inheritance awaiting for us, but we're not there yet. So with Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. We experience its joys, its victories, its peace, and its blessings. God's kingdom is wherever he reigns, and he reigns in us. We know that this kingdom is already, it is here, but it is not yet. It's not come to fulfillment, because we know sin has not been completely overthrown. The depravity and barbarity of man is on full display this week. Sickness and disease, plague and pestilence still rule this world. The earth still groans, the planet shake. And I read this week in 2150 or so, an asteroid is going to come and obliterate half of the planet. That's a promise that we'll have to wait for fulfillment, I guess. But we live in this middle of the story, right? When everything seems upside down, broken, and hopeless. Between the promise of Jesus' return and his actual coming. So we live between these seasons, on a cliffhanger, if you will. But there is hope. God is in control. He is writing the script according to his loving and sovereign plan. But on the other hand, we have to live in the middle here. And it feels some days like this long Saturday that the disciples experienced between the death and the rising day. We know Jesus is coming back, but it's been a long time. We start to lose hope, maybe. Is Jesus who he really said he is? Is he coming back? We might lose the plot some nights. We forget, ah, forget this Jesus nonsense. Let's let sin rule the day and Jesus can have tomorrow. We grow weary in doing good. We just get lazy or complacent or apathetic. We get distracted by all the shiny things in this world. We may get weighed down with sin, with guilt, with hopelessness. All these responses and more, are they can come to our minds as we await Jesus' return. But it's interesting in the New Testament, at least ten times the apostles and the apostles say that we must wait for Jesus. That's part of the Christian life is waiting So how do we wait? How do we look forward? How do we hasten the day of Christ's return? Here's four points of application. How do we live in this time between the promise and the fulfillment? Number one, we must stir up our hearts and believe. Stir up your heart and believe. So the disciples heard Jesus predict his death and resurrection many times. Here's just one example from Matthew chapter 17. So Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So they had the testimony of Jesus himself. Several times he predicted this was going to happen. Moreover, they had the witness of the Old Testament, saying that the Messiah would be a a servant who would suffer and die on the behalf of his people. He would be killed, buried, and resurrected. 
But they missed all this. See at the end of that? They did not understand. And they, they were unwilling or unable to ask Jesus what this meant. When Jesus is resurrected a few days later, he will speak to this, uh, these two guys walking along the road to Emmaus. And here's what he says to them. This is on the screen too. Jesus, walking after his resurrection, says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So I don't know if you've ever walked up to somebody on the road and go, hey, you fools, you slow of heart. What a way to introduce yourself. But that's what Jesus does. He's hearing their conversations like, guys, you don't get it. He chides and challenges them for not knowing the scriptures that they thought they knew so well. He's like, wake up, guys, and believe what he said. Remember what the Bible taught. Now, this exhortation here, this application, stir up your hearts and believe. It is not a command or a challenge simply to, hey, do better. Hey, believe more. Try harder. No, 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 it's not that. I'm convinced, and you baby too, that it is impossible to stir up your own heart. How do you wake yourself up? How do we carry out this command? Well, look what Jesus does in his resurrection. Remember here, he challenges his disciples to, to believe, but then he opens their eyes to understand the scripture. He opens their minds so they can see and understand he speaks to them so they can know his voice. He offers his side to be touched and believed in. At every point, Jesus, as he interacts with his disciples, he says, hey guys, don't stir your own heart up. He stirs their heart. He stirs their affection. He opens their eyes. Just think of us. Our eyes are blind. Our ears are deafened. Our minds are dull and our affections are often blunted. Yet the Holy Spirit allows our faith, our affections, and our minds to grasp the resurrected Christ and live. So to have your heart and mind stirred up and opened, the Holy Spirit must point us back to Jesus through his revealed word. In the scriptures, through the scriptures, he explains to the disciples. He, in the upper room, he opens the, the Bible to teach the disciples. So if you want to be stirred up, if you want your heart to be awakened, get into the word and pray like the psalmist. Oh Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. This is the prayer that God loves to answer. So let's see the wonderful things about Jesus by getting into the word to have our hearts stirred. But many of us know this story and it may get a little dull. So pray and press in. Oh God, May I behold wondrous things from your word. So we know where the story ends. We know our place in it because we know the Bible. Although we, know, we may not know exactly the way forward, we know his word and his presence will guide us to that end. So stir up your hearts by getting into scripture. Number two, steal your courage and be bold. Steal your courage and be bold. And so when we understand the scripture, when we understand our place in it, we see how the work of Jesus unites us with himself. We're united to him in his death and resurrection. And that should give us great courage and boldness. His death has become our death. His resurrection has become our resurrection. 
We are crucified to sin and dead to the world. Nothing can harm us, nothing can shame us, nothing can derail us. In the first century, uh, Justin Martyr, you can understand why he got his name because he was martyred, gave an apology. He says this to the people who were persecuting the Christians. He says, you may harm or you can kill us, but you cannot harm us. You can kill us, but you cannot harm us. That's the mindset of a Christian. We're united to him in his death. We're united to him in his resurrection. The same power that will raise Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead. And so that should give us courage and boldness to take great risks for the kingdom. Look at the example of Joseph and Nicodemus in our passage here. Both of these men were members of the Jewish council. They had prominence, they had wealth, they had stature, they had privilege, they had position, they had power in their community. If they had said and done nothing at the trial or the execution of Jesus, they would have kept their status. They'd have remained and lost nothing of their privilege. But now they're willing to risk everything to care for the body of Jesus. These disciples who once followed in secret, you see that in our passage, are now proclaiming public adoration and affection for Jesus. You see, it's dangerous to be associated with one crucified. You could be arrested and killed yourself if you're just an associate with someone crucified. And so Mark will tell us that Joseph took courage, which is, I think, is kind of an understatement. He took courage and went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. It's a great risk to be seen as a follower of Jesus by the Romans, but it's even greater and more precarious to be seen as a follower of Jesus by the Jews. So it's the Jews who saw Jesus as radioactive. He's unstable. He's dangerous. And the Jewish council was adamant about getting rid of Jesus. But Nicodemus and Joseph are both members of that same council. Not only their careers and lifestyles are at risk, their very lives are at stake. Just marvel at the courage of these two. It's no private matter here. They take Jesus off the cross, carry him down a hill, and then bury him. But I can't help but wonder, so you have Joseph and Nicodemus here. Where are the other 11? Where's Peter? Where's John? Where's James and the others? Shouldn't they be the one taking the risk and being bold? Well, no, they're off hiding. So it's quite the contrast. The 11 disciples are MIA. They're disappeared. While these two prominent Jewish members of society have everything to lose, are putting themselves at risk to care for Jesus. So I don't know where they were hiding, but I have a feeling that I would probably be hiding alongside them. I'm not that bold. I lack courage. I don't speak out. I don't put myself at risk. And in the trying times that we face here in our world, in this long Saturday where death and evil and God's enemies seem to be winning, it can be hard to not go into the shadows and just hide. But that should not be the case for us. We should be the most bold, the most courageous, the most confident of all people, willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. Joseph and Nicodemus were willing to give it all away to serve Jesus. Are we? We have nothing to lose. Why not risk it? So we steal our courage. Number three, we should sustain our work and be ready. 
We should sustain our work and be ready. So it's interesting, the word preparation comes up a couple times in this passage. Joseph makes uh, preparation in a tomb for Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus prepares spices. The women, a few uh, verses later, have prepared spices and things to care for the body of Jesus. They have work to do. And so when Jesus ascends to heaven, he doesn't leave us disciples alone to figure it out. He gives us instructions to act, to work, to manifest the kingdom of God, to set up the outposts in the local church. And so as we await the return of Jesus, there is still work for us to do, so we should be ready to do those things. We should be ready to give ourselves for these things, to count the cost, to follow him in ministry and in service. And so we're called to serve Jesus as we serve others. There is work for us to do, not to earn God's favor, but out of gratitude and worship to do good works. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor needs to know that Jesus is dead, buried, and resurrected. So he leaves us here to make disciples, to serve others, especially the least of these. So before he goes into the crucifixion, into the grave, Jesus instructs his disciples on this very matter. And he sprinkles in a whole lot of parables about what this looks like. He's saying, guys, I'm going to go away. You're going to have work to do, and then I'm going to come back. But he says, I'm going to go away, and my return is going to be both sudden and delayed. Sudden because it could be at any time, and we should always be ready. But it's delayed because it might be a little longer than you would like. Here, just one example of this, Matthew 24. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now the flip side. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The temptation for us is to become lazy or apathetic, to stop working, to get distracted by the things of this world. We might lose hope that Jesus is never coming back. Or we said, hey, his coming back is a whole long time from now, so we can live however we want. That's not the indication in Jesus' parable. That's not what he instructs us. You can see the severity and the seriousness of Jesus' instruction here. As we wait from him, we should be diligently following him, serving others, serving him, using what he has entrusted to us for the good of others. Again, we don't do these to earn his favor. We already have those blessings. But we utilize the talents and opportunities he's given for us. So be ready. Another point about how we are to work and conduct ourselves in these in-between times has to do with ourselves. When Peter speaks to the church, and they're in this moment in his second letter, they're saying, well, Jesus is gone. Is he coming back? What's going to happen? And so he says, we should be working to prepare ourselves for his return. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and he gives us some indication of what we're supposed to be doing in ourselves. He says this in chapter 3, verse 13, but according to his promise, that's God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? That's what we're waiting for. 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, here's our command, be diligent to be found of be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. A few verses later in verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the, law, with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter says, he uses that adjective, be diligent in our pursuit of godly character. Be diligent to pursue holiness. Be diligent to be theologically stable. Keep going and grow and mature in grace and knowledge and understanding of Jesus. Know Jesus more. Keep pushing forward. Keep pursuing him. Find Christ, his righteousness, and find his resurrection. Keep going. Don't get tired. Don't become weary. Jesus has not come back yet, but he will. So keep running the race. Be ready to work for Jesus and to pursue him and serve others. It would be easy, I think easier, to know that there is a finish line out there. Well, we know Jesus is coming back on this date, so I'm going to keep pushing and keep moving, keep working forward. But he hasn't given us a clear vision yet. So fourth, our fourth application Steady your pace and be patient. Steady your pace and be patient. So if you go back to Peter's second letter here, he's writing to Christians who are anxiously and expectantly waiting for Jesus to return tomorrow. Because in that day, some of the false teachers said, well, Jesus has already come back and you missed it. Another group was saying, hey, his coming is a long time now, so just forget it. You can live however you want to. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 4. It says, They will say, the false teachers will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You might have friends like that who kind of ridicule your fury of faith, right? Ah, that Jesus, he's coming back someday, sure. Jesus isn't coming back, so eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want, do what you will. And it can be very disheartening and debilitating even to think that well, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. What if he's gone for 2,000 more years? It'd be easy to give up. But this is why Peter writes for us to continue to run and steady our pace and to be patient. And we become patient because God is patient. Eloise has often asked when she wakes up, even like she did yesterday, is it Halloween, which is at the end of the month, or is it my birthday? Just next week. No, it's this day and this day. A couple weeks ago, she started asking me, Dad, is it tomorrow? <laughs> no, Eloise, it's still today. <laughs> Why? Because, Eloise, we always live in today. We don't live in tomorrow. Oh, okay. We don't know tomorrow. We always have to live in today. But we know who holds tomorrow. And this is what Peter reminds us of. We live in today, but God lives outside of today. Listen to the promise in verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So did you catch that? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, because he is patient towards those who haven't come to faith in Christ yet. His patience is a key component of our salvation. He was patient enough to wait for you to be born and to be saved. 
What if he's delayed his coming so your kids or your great-grandkids could come to faith? What if he's being patient so he will save your great-grandkids' great-grandkids? He's delayed his return so people would come to glorify and honor and praise his name forever. And if the Lord is patient with us, why can we not be patient with him? So we hasten the day. We look forward to it. We want it to come, but we trust him. We know his promise will be fulfilled. And it may seem like a dark, long Saturday like the disciples experienced, but we know that Resurrection Sunday is coming. Maybe not tomorrow, but some tomorrow. We work courageously. We walk with patience, knowing that salvation of the Lord will come. And so we're living in the middle of this Jesus story, right? He has died and he will be resurrected. But today in our story, he lies silent in the grave. We have to remind ourselves that this episode in John 19 and 20 takes place in the middle of a bigger story. In fact, the greatest and grandest story ever written. It's a narrative that spans all of history and all of eternity. But it's a story that starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden, a perfect garden where man dwelt with God in love and harmony. Yet in that garden, man will dig his own grave. He rebels against his creature and falls into sin. Everything in that garden and everything in this world is now broken. That's the story we enter into. We're in the middle of that story. Therefore, God must remake that garden for his creatures to dwell in. But it's not until the very end of that story that we see a perfect garden reappear. In the midst of a heavenly city, a garden grows. So the story of man and God begins in a garden and ends in a garden. We live in this wilderness in between. And so it's interesting to look at the full picture, the full story of Scripture, because God will connect the first Garden of Eden with the last Garden of Eternity by entering into this wilderness to be buried in a third garden. It's a garden tomb. And it is in this garden that the body of Jesus is placed and buried, not to decay, but to die and rise again to new life, bringing forth fruit of the resurrection. And so we find ourselves lost in this story so often. We're in the middle of the story, at the edge of a cliffhanger, in turmoil, in conflict, with seemingly no resolution. We have faint glimmers and glimpses of what is coming, but we don't know how we're going to get there yet. And so as we see Jesus dead, but not yet raised, when we see him ascend and not yet return, remember the story is not over. He's patiently writing, patiently waiting, sovereignly controlling his promise he will fulfill. And so we will ask, God, is it tomorrow? No, son, it is still today. But because he has died and rose again, we can live and face the story of tomorrow. Let's pray.